If you're new with us, or if you've been with us from some time, we have been studying the book of 1 Peter together. And as our sermon series title suggests, 1 Peter is, the theme has been holy living in a hostile world. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering for their faith and their exiles. Their physical exiles physical exiles. They've left their homes, they're scattered, and they're spiritual exiles. This world is not their home. And while they're being persecuted for their faith, Peter's reminding them of the hope that they have in Jesus because of the gospel. He's encouraging them to what I like to call suffer well. He's encouraging them to suffer well, meaning follow the example of Jesus. Pursue holiness in the midst of your suffering. Stay the course. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep following Jesus. You have an inheritance that is waiting for you. Last week, we read the first six verses of chapter 4, where we learn that the Christians are to know that through their suffering, God is making them more like Jesus. He's sanctifying them. That as they pursue holy living, the Gentiles, unbelievers, those who do not trust in Jesus, are going to malign them, mock them. But Peter tells them judgment is coming. Those who do not listen to the word of God, who do not trust in Jesus, will have to stand before him, Jesus, the one who is to judge the living and the dead. And our passage picks up there this morning. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see the transition here. The Gentiles are living this way. Unbelievers live this way. And we get to our passage this morning and we see Peter give them some instructions on how to live. And if you've noticed, there's been this phrase repeated three times, one another. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another. Serve one another. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the church. And he starts off saying that the end of all things is near. It almost sounds like he's saying the world's ending. The end of all things is near. Now, when we're studying the Bible, one thing that's helpful for us is to study the mood of a passage. Right? When we watch movies, there's moods throughout the movie. There's times of crying and times of laughter. There's times of seriousness and silliness, joy and sadness. 
this mood here is very serious. The end of all things is near. Yet for the believer, it would bring hope. But there's a sense of nearness and urgency in what Peter has been saying. The end of all things is near. This has been a theme throughout the letter, if you've picked up on it. At the beginning of the letter, he told them about the revelation, the coming revelation of Jesus Christ. We've read phrases like the last times or the day of visitation. Now, when we read about the end times in Scripture, sometimes the sense of urgency, the nearness of which Jesus Paul, Peter, John write about the coming of Jesus can make it hard for us. What does that mean? What is the end? And how can they say it's near? Especially 2,000 years removed from the New Testament writings. How are we to interpret and understand that? This is important for us to understand. So first, let's talk about the end. What is the end? As we've seen in this letter, the end is the second coming of Jesus when he comes again. And throughout this letter, that means two things. One, it means salvation for believers. Full, complete, final salvation. He told them at the beginning of the letter that they have an inheritance reserved in heaven, waiting for them. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's kept for them. He told them to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus. So for believers, when we hear the end is near, it's not a sense of panic. It's a sense of joy, peace, hope. Jesus is coming, and that's good news for us through suffering, sin, death, sickness, Jesus is coming. But it also means judgment. Judgment for those who do not know Jesus. We read this morning that, that the earth is being reserved for fire and judgment on the ungodly. That's serious. If you're sitting in this room and you're thinking that's you, we read that God is patient. This delay in the return of Jesus is so people would come to know him and believe and be saved. So, so the end is the second coming of Jesus, which means salvation for believers and judgment for unbelievers. But how is it near? What does it mean that it's near, coming soon? What do you think when you hear the last days? What comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, the last days. I think for many of us, the immediate thought is, well, because of what I'm hearing on the news, I'm seeing out in the world, Jesus must be coming soon. Things are getting worse, it seems. Now, there might be some truth to that, but I think there's a better way for us to understand that. Biblically speaking, we've been in the last days since the first coming of Jesus. Notice what Peter says in, verse P, in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. 
The writer of Hebrews starts off his letter, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The last days began at the first coming of Jesus, when he came to pay the penalty for our sins, to die the death that we deserve, and when he was resurrected, ascended to be at the Father, and poured the Spirit upon all who know him. The last days began. And this is where we are. This is the timeline of redemption. We are living between the first and second coming of Jesus. This is where we are, church family. So Peter can say the end is near because we've been living in the last days. Now, what do we do with the delay? It's been 2,000 years. We're still waiting for Jesus. Perhaps the, the mockers are saying, where is he? Where is he? Well, there's two things that I find particularly helpful for this. Thomas Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, wrote a book called The Joy of Hearing, and it's specifically about the book of Revelation. And in that book, he has a small section that deals specifically with this topic. How do we understand the nearness when, when the New Testament writers speak of the nearness of the return of Jesus? How do we understand that 2,000 years later? Well, the first thing he says is that he talks about the promise and fulfillment in Scripture. He says, previous prophecies and delay in fulfillment should shape our understanding of what it means for Jesus to come soon. What does that mean? Well, there's a chart, uh, I think, on the slide. So if you look at this chart, this is a, a chart from Answers in Genesis, and it has major biblical events. Now, look at creation, 4000 BC. Now, we do not know how soon after our seven-day creation, God created the, the world in seven days, how soon after Adam and Eve fell, disobeyed God in sin. But let's just, you know, we know that it was around that time. Well, God made a promise to Adam and Eve. Your offspring, your seed, will crush the head of the serpent. Now, you would have to imagine, if you're Adam and Eve, you're thinking that's probably coming soon. I'm going to have a child that's going to go to war against the serpent. Yet, Jesus comes around 4 BC. That's 4,000 years for that promise to come to fulfillment. So what we see in Scripture, and this is just one example, there's many, we see that there is often a promise that God makes and a delay in the fulfillment of that promise. But the delay should not bring doubt for us because we see throughout the Scripture, God is always, always faithful to keep His promises. Always faithful. The, the second thing that Thomas Schreiner says is that we shouldn't interpret the nearness too simplistically. And he, he references 2 Peter 3, where we read that, that a, one day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years as one day. 
Now, God, what's that saying is God does not feel time the way we do. We think in terms of minutes, hours, days, months, years. God is. He always has been. He always will be. He does not see time the way we do. And we know that the day will come like a thief in the night. So as we're working through this and we hear that the end is near, for us Christians, that means hope. For unbelievers, the delay means God's patience for salvation. So Peter's not giving them an exact time, but he's setting them up for the time in which they live. He's reminding the believers, the church, the time in which they live. Do you believe this, church? Do we believe this? The end is near. The time is at hand. If we do, according to Peter, our thinking and our living will reflect it, which leads into Peter's first command, his first instruction to the church this morning. He says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That word, those words sound judgment and sober spirit essentially mean the same thing, to, to, to think clearly, to be sane, to be sensible, to think according to reality. It's the opposite of being drunk. If someone's intoxicated, they can't see clearly. They don't think rationally if you've ever been around someone who's intoxicated. They don't, they don't think according to reality. They don't have sober minds. So there's a clear exhortation here to stay away from drunkenness, but also any type of living or thinking that clouds our minds. There's been a lot of emphasis in this book on the mind. Prepare your minds for action. We read last week, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Be sober-minded. Think according to reality. My wife, Candace, and I have two children, Boaz and Ezra, and we, uh, we have a third on the way. During the pregnancy, you start kind of to prepare a little bit. You start thinking about how you need to get the room ready. What's to come? Right? Now, it would not be sensible or sane or rational if I started trying to plan a two-week trip to Hawaii close to my wife's due date. I would, she would say, Brant, that's not, where's your head at? You're not thinking soberly. You're not thinking according to reality, the time in which we are living, right? That's Peter's point here. We're, the, the end is near, so think rationally. Why? For the purpose of prayers. Because the end is near, think clearly for the purpose of your prayers. Now, that could be interpreted two different ways. One, it, uh, the ESV says, for the sake of your prayers, which might imply God hearing your prayers. We read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 3 that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, so that their prayers are not hindered. Peter quoted Psalm 34, where it says, the eyes of the Lord are to, toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there's a clear implication, even for believers, that we could be living in such a way that our prayers are hindered. They're not effective. 
Perhaps God's not answering them because we're not being faithful. That's one interpretation. The second is be sober-minded so you can pray rightly, so you can pray according to reality. If you're not thinking clearly, how could you be praying clearly? Now, I think both are, could work here. Both principles are certainly true, but I would lean towards the second, and here's why. Notice what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21, verses 34 to 36. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus was telling his disciples, Peter being one of them, about his coming, about the end. And his instruction is then, to them is be on guard. Be alert. How? Through prayer. This is what I think Peter is teaching his readers. Remember, they're undergoing intense suffering and persecution for their faith. You can imagine how tempted it would be for them to quit, to give up, to stop fighting. The suffering's not worth it. Everyone else seems like they're having a better time. Life is easier for those who aren't following Jesus. Peter's saying, don't believe that, church. Don't believe that lie. The end is near. Jesus is coming. Your deliverer, your redeemer is coming. So pray. Pray that you would have the strength to escape, the strength to endure, the strength to continue living holiness, pursuing holy living, so you stand before the Son of Man. This is our call, church family. We understand this. As we look out, our neighbors, our coworkers, life seems easier for them. The cars they drive, the houses they have, how they spend their money, their partying. Life just seems easier. They don't, they, it seems like they don't have any cares. Uh, I, I want to I, I get that promotion. I'll do anything to get that promotion. Look, look, they don't work hard. They lie. They fudge the numbers so they could get that promotion. These temptations are real for us. And Peter is reminding us Be sober. Know the time in which you live. Jesus is coming. One question that we can ask ourselves is if we're living sober-minded is, what is your prayer life like? What is my prayer life like? Does it reflect that I'm living according to reality, that I'm thinking clearly, that my mind is set on Jesus, that I'm waiting for Him Or does it show that the worries of the world, the cares of the world are weighing me down? That there's a lack of prayer life because I'm I'm weighted down by the worries of the world. When we think rightly, we will pray rightly. 
And when we pray rightly, it will lead to right living. Goes on to Peter's second instruction to the church. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, of primary importance, keep loving one another. This is the fourth time that they've been commanded in this letter to love one another. There will be one more at the end of the book where it will say, greet one another with a kiss of love. But Brian or Austin will have to awkwardly cover that command to the church. (laughs) The, The repetition should highlight the importance for us of this command. This is consistent throughout the Bible. Jesus told the disciples they will be known by their love for one another. And notice the word keep, which suggests Peter knew that they were doing this, and he wants them to keep pressing on, keep loving each other. Church family, we cannot hear this command enough. We know We don't have to be told that it's hard to love. We know it's hard to love. But it's who we are. We've been born again by the Spirit to love. One of the reasons I think Peter keeps bringing this up is because in their suffering, you would imagine it would be hard to love. They've left their homes. They're being persecuted for their faith. It would be hard to love. We know that when the stresses of life come upon us, It can be hard to love. A long day at the office, and you come home stressed. It could be hard to love your spouse and your children. The stresses in church ministry, trying to figure out who's going to do what. Again, Peter's writing this to the church. We know that it can be challenging to love, but we're called to pursue it and to do it eagerly, fervently. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered because love covers a multitude of sins. It causes something to not be known. Peter likely has in mind Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. When we love each other, we forgive each other. I think there's a few implications here for what it means to cover sin. It means we don't nitpick at each other. We don't look for flaws to point out and bring up. We don't hang past wrongs over one another. God remembers our sins no more. He never takes it into account again. He doesn't hold it over our head to try to control or manipulate us. He forgives us. And that forgiveness is to be lived out in the church. Peter could say this because he experienced it from God and man. Peter denied Jesus three times. And when we get to the end of the Gospel of John, we see an interaction with Jesus and Peter. And 
Jesus has a conversation and he tells Peter to go feed his sheep. Nowhere do we read about Jesus going up to Peter, how dare you deny me? How dare you? He forgives Peter. He knows Peter's frame. He loves Peter. Peter is his son. He's been counted righteous, justified. He's been made right with God. His sins have been forgiven. He also experienced this from Paul. If you're familiar with the letter to the Galatian church, we, we learn that Peter was hanging out with Gentiles, Christian Gentiles, but then when, when Jewish Christians came, he peaced out. Uh, I'm not friends with these guys. And Peter, or Paul, has to confront Peter. And he says, Peter, Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He stood condemned. Did Paul condemn him? No. He reminded him of what it means to be saved by grace through faith. Peter experienced a love that covers a multitude of sins, numerous sins and numerous times. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you seven times a day and comes to you and acknowledges his fault to you, forgive him. I'm sorry I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Forgiven. I'm sorry I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Forgiven. I'm sorry I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Forgiven. We get the point. It's not an exact number, but there is to be forgiveness in the church. I think a great example of this is marriage. And if this describes your marriage, please come talk to us. But imagine a marriage in which a spouse or spouses are constantly pointing each other's flaws out constantly bringing up past wrongs. A marriage like that could not survive. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. This implies that we will sin against each other. Let that sink in for a minute, church. You will sin against others, and others will sin against you. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't mean we never confront sin or we don't deal with sin, but it's reality. Remember, we're living in the last days, the time between the first coming and second coming of Jesus, and we are all on what is called a path of progressive sanctification where God is each day making us more and more like Jesus. So we remember that. We remember what God is doing in each of us, that he's promised to complete his work in us, that he forgives us. And so we forgive each other. And this is living out the gospel. When we forgive each other, the gospel is seen. Because God forgives us, when we forgive others, people see the gospel. They see the forgiveness that God offers us. So love covers a multitude of sins it's, is a test for us this morning. How well do you overlook someone's sins? How quickly do you forgive someone when they wrong you? Are you always looking for flaws in somebody else? 
Do you bring up past wrongs? Do you talk about other people's sins? Or do we have a love that covers all offenses? So Peter, reminding the church of the time in which they live, of the hope that they have to come, is encouraging them to be sober, to love, and he moves on, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now, this would have been particularly clear to Peter's readers. They're exiles. They've left their homes. The church, the early church, homes is where people gathered for worship. The home is where they would host missionaries who were traveling to spread the gospel. The home, the church in some sense relied on the home. That is where they gathered to to hear the word, to love each other, to break bread together. So Peter's calling them to open their homes, and it's not just to those who they know well or they're close with. That word hospitality is made up of two Greek words, stranger and friend. Friend of strangers. Peter's readers might not know the other believers well, but they're being called, open your homes, be hospitable, provide food, meals, shelter, a place to stay, a place for worship. And the kicker, do it without complaint. That word means the act of expressing one's internal reaction to a situation, to others, or to oneself. So not just complaining outwardly, but grumbling inwardly. I don't want to open my home. What if I have to sacrifice watching the game tonight? What if I have to spend money on other people? I don't want to have them over. They're a bit quirky. We don't get along well. The church is to be a place where we show hospitality and we do it with joy. And I've seen this in our church. I know this is happening. People opening their homes for students to stay. People opening their homes for someone in a crisis who's going through a difficult time in life and needs a place to live, to stay and sleep. Having people over for meals, hosting missionaries when they're in the States, having a small group hosted at your house. This is hospitality, and we're to do it with joy because we know our home is not here. We are spiritual exiles. Our home is in heaven, so we use what God has given us down here, our homes, for others, to serve others in love. And the beauty of it is that when we do this, we will learn that we need a love that covers a multitude of sins. When we open our homes, now we're vulnerable. The facade comes off. When people come into my home, I'm at risk. What if they see me have an argument with my wife? What if they see me get frustrated with my kids? Will they love me? Will they have a love that covers all offenses or will they judge me? If I see them, will I love them or will I judge them, their parenting style, how well they're loving their spouse? 
When we open up our homes, we get to see the gospel. We get to practice a love that covers a multitude of sins. We get to serve each other, which leads us to Peter's final instruction to the church this morning in 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The command for the church to use their gifts to serve one another. Now, a lot could be said here about spiritual gifts, but we want to track with Peter this morning. If, if you notice in the text, he stays broad. He doesn't focus in on specific gifts, but his focus is on the use of the gifts themselves. So let's track with Peter and lay a foundation for spiritual gifts here. Notice one, he says, as each has received a special gift. Everyone who trusts in Jesus, who's been born again by the Spirit, has a spiritual gift. Hear that, church. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus has a spiritual gift gift. You might not know what it is. That's okay. We'll get there. We'll talk about that. We want to help each other in this. But you have a spiritual gift, at least one. Men, women, boys and girls who know Jesus too have a spiritual gift. We see, secondly, that these gifts are from God. Notice that he calls the believers stewards of God's varied grace. So in his grace, God gives gifts to believers, and we are the stewards of them. They're not ours. They're God's. We read in 1 Corinthians 13 that these are, gifts are manifestations of the Spirit. So God, through the Holy Spirit, gives gifts to every single believer in Jesus. Third, we see that the gifts are to be used to serve each other. They're to be used to help the body of Christ grow. Ephesians 4 tells us that gifts are used for the building up of the body of Christ. So you have a gift, believer, that is to be used to help others grow in Christ. And lastly, we see that these gifts are to be used in reliance on God. Look how Peter says, if you have a speaking gift, speak the utterances of God, speak God's word. If you have a gift of service, Serve in God's strength, not your own. Thomas Schreiner has a, a, a nice, simple def definition of spiritual gifts that I like, and you'll see it up on the slide here. Uh, he says, spiritual gifts are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. I think this is a nice, helpful definition for us to think through spiritual gifts. So you might be asking, well, what are the gifts? Notice how Peter breaks them out into two categories. He breaks them out in gifts of speaking and gifts of service. Again, he's staying broad, but this is consistent with every time we see a list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. I would commend to you to read 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 where there are lists of spiritual gifts, but most commentators will agree that even those lists are not exhaustive themselves, but when you read the list of those gifts, you'll see that you could sum them up into these two categories, gifts of speaking and gifts of service. 
A gift of speaking might be teaching, exhortation, a pastor teacher, an evangelist. Gifts of service might be giving, leading, mercy, hospitality. There's various gifts and there's various ways to use those gifts. Think about teaching. I'm teaching right now. Some of you teach in small groups at home. Adults are teaching children downstairs. There's different spiritual gifts, different uses of those spiritual gifts, and that's what makes the body of Christ beautiful. God has designed us in such a way that we need each other. Now, we do have to say, not having a specific gift doesn't get you out of the task. For example, evangelism is a gift, yet every believer is called to evangelize. Someone who has the spiritual gift of evangelism will do it in an extraordinary way. We've seen it. You've probably seen someone use their gift in an extraordinary way, and there's much fruit from it. But again, Peter stays broad here, and he's focusing on the use of the gifts to serve each other. Now, maybe you're wondering what your gift is. Maybe you're not sure. I've had conversations with others, and this can be a hard topic for some. They want to know what their gift is. They want to be using it. A couple thoughts. One is, don't wait to start serving until you know what your gift is. Notice Peter's focus here. It's on serving. If you're involved in ministry, if you're serving the body of Christ in love, you are in the will of God. You might even be using your gift and not knowing it. Nowhere do we see in the New Testament that we're to obsess over what our gift is, but on the purpose of using that gift to serve others for the glory of God. So I would encourage you, if you don't know what your gift is, start serving somewhere in the body. And over time, your gift will become known and talk to those who are close to you. A trusted brother or sister, ask them, what do you think my spiritual gift is? Where do you see fruit in my life through serving others? Now, I do want to take a moment to honor some here in this room about spiritual gifts. This is good for us, church. It's good to honor one another and to praise God for each other. When I think of the gift of serving, I think of Daryl Beam. That brother is here serving all the time. In sickness and in health, he is here, stacking chairs, handing out Bibles for our growth, our edification, for the glory of Jesus. I told Austin a few weeks ago, I'm so thankful for the women who serve in the kitchen. Funerals, men's events, they are here and they're serving. These are spiritual gifts. This should encourage us. What, what to us might seem like some ordinary tasks are not. They're extraordinarily being used by the Spirit that we would grow into the image of Jesus. Thank you, church. The list could go on, right? The list could go on. But it's important that we honor each other. If you know someone using their spiritual gift and it's impacting you, thank them. Honor them. Praise God for them. Because it's all 
for his glory as we see as we wrap up today's passage. The goal of it all is the glory of God. Notice how he says in verse 11 that so that in all things God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now this is certainly related to spiritual gifts. Notice the flow of thought. If you speak, speak God's words. If you serve, serve in God's strength so that in all things God would be glorified through Jesus. But one commentator noted that the all things is most likely wrapping up the section from chapter 2, 11 to chapter 3, verse 7. In the very least, it has everything in our passage today. God is glorified through Jesus when we live for him, when we serve one another. What we have seen throughout the last several passages of 1 Peter is when we live holy lives for Jesus, God is glorified through him. When we suffer for Jesus, God is glorified through him. When we live lives of submission to government, even submitting to unjust rulers just like Jesus did when he was being mocked and crucified, God is glorified through Jesus. When our marriages reflect submission and sacrificial love, God is glorified through Jesus. When we, the church, love each other with a love that covers a multitude of sins, when we show hospitality to each other without complaint, without grumbling, when we use our gifts to serve each other, God is glorified through Jesus. This should encourage us, church family, The glory is God's period. His glory does not depend on us, but in his grace, we can praise his name. We can exalt him and lift him up as glorious when we live for him, even in such ordinary tasks as having someone over your house for a meal in the name of Jesus, providing shelter for someone, or as Jesus said, giving somebody a cup of cold water glorifies Jesus. And notice, notice how he ends. Peter says all this, and he breaks out in what's called a doxology. To him belongs all the glory, all the honor, the dominion forever and ever. The glory is his, church. We are now living in the last days, waiting for his glory to be revealed. And in God's grace, we can bring glory to him as we love each other, which is our big idea for the passage this morning. We seek God's glory through serving one another. We seek God's glory through serving one another. Church family, the end of all things is near. Jesus is coming. And we could say that whether Jesus is coming tomorrow or in another thousand years, the end is near. So let us continue the path of following Jesus, of pursuing holiness in a hostile world by loving each other, serving each other for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We say with Peter, to you, O Lord, belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Keep us from seeking our own glory It's too easy to live for ourselves. Keep us from falling prey to the lies of the world. Where is he? Where are you, Lord? We know you're coming. 
Let us not quit. Let us not give in to the temptations of the world. Let us not live as others do. But let us live ordinary Christian lives of love, of service, of humility, of submission, that your glory would be made known, that the world would see and glorify you on the day of visitation. Lord, send us out into the world today to live for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord's peace be upon you this week. Thank you.